25, which can be found on page 26. The death of Abraham. Abraham had taken another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dedan. The descendants of Dedan were the Asherites, the Letushites, and the Leumites. The sons of Midian were Ephar, Ephur, Hanok, Abida, and Eldeah. All these were descendants of Keturah. Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite, the field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lehi Roy. Father, as we reach this account of just simply headed here in our Bibles, the death of Abraham, uh, we ask, Lord, please, that you would uh, teach us through your word. And, and we pray, Lord, you'd help us to where we need to, just to adjust our lives and the way we look at things in the light of your word this evening. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. So we're on Genesis 25 and... Uh, uh, do have that open in front of you. Now, um, uh, I, don't know, I don't know how many of you have been watching this character. Yeah? Bodyguard. And uh, uh, I think it's been, well, I wasn't too keen on the sex scenes, but uh, I thought the rest of it was really good. And, uh, um, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, I don't know about you, but before it came on, there was trailer after trailer after trailer. And um, uh, we, we were told, weren't we, it's going to be a great drama. Didn't see the first episode. A friend of mine said, you've got to watch this. And, uh, uh, and that was amazing. And I got drawn in uh, watching it on iPlayer. And uh, I think it's really good. Uh, the drama, the tension is great. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a TV critic. Okay? I'm not here to advertise uh, TV, uh, BBC uh, drama and so on. My point is that trailers for TV programs uh, are a really good taster and then they draw you in to watch not only the program but probably uh, the whole series. Uh, 
In the same way that, for instance, you're walking down, say, George Street, and the smell of coffee coming from that uh, Costa, actually wouldn't come out of Costa, would it? But anyway, it would come out of a, of a, of a coffee shop, and uh, uh, it would draw you in for a wonderful cup of coffee. Or in the world of academia, you know, if someone writes an academic paper, they put a precy at the top, and uh, it's a summary of what, what they're about to say, and you might be interested and read the whole thing. Or an orchestra. Uh, maybe you go to uh, um, an orchestral concert and there's the overture at the start, a taster of the whole symphony that draws you in. The whole idea of all of these things, it's taste and see. Now, we've all experienced it. For most of us, there's a, uh, the gap between tasting and seeing is pretty small, I suppose. Uh, so you see the trailer and maybe in a week or a, d- a couple of days or whatever you see the program. You smell the coffee, you always have to queue for it, don't you? So five, ten minutes or so and uh, maybe you're, uh, you're drinking the cup of coffee yourself. You listen to the overture and then within a few minutes you're into the full symphony. Taste and see. Now for Abraham, we see here he's coming to the end of his life. And it's slightly different because it's not taste and see. This evening is something slightly different and far more significant. It's taste, then see. Taste, then see later. You taste it now, then you see. Now, Abraham has been given two promises. I'm not going to be doing much uh, jumping around here. I, I try not to do that too much. But I think it's really important we should just turn back to page 15 and Genesis chapter 15. Because in verse 5, Abraham is given the first of two great promises here. God took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And in verse 7, uh, he, as God also said to him, that's Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. That's big promise number two. Now, here we are in Genesis chapter 25, and we are at the end of Abraham's life. He's got one descendant. One descendant. But that's not like the stars in the sky, is it? And he's got a teeny bit of the land of Canaan where he buried Sarah 38 years ago. And that's all. So God has promised him descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the whole country of Canaan. And what's he got? One son and a bit of land the size of a postage stamp. It's just not happening, is it? People? Place? Not really. But then imagine you're Abraham in those last few minutes here on earth. Your life is ebbing away. It's a struggle. Every breath is hard work. And your breaths are getting more shallow and there are gaps between them. And you're barely conscious. The end is near. And then gradually, slowly, a bit like the tide going out, your breathing gets very shallow and your heart slows and stops. 
and you die. And as you, Abraham, pass to glory, what do you notice? You notice a place. And you notice a people. And dominating the scene, you notice your great God and his son Jesus Christ, in whom has been your hope, your faith. And you can see here, in heaven, God's place, populated with God's people. You see your place, you see the fulfillment of your promise. And you see your people, people of faith, the fulfillment of this other promise. You see here exactly what God has promised you, totally, completely and perfectly fulfilled. In that moment of your death. John Bunyan. I didn't know he had a slight squint, but according to that painting he does. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress, he wrote this. Drawing near to the city, they had yet a more perfect view thereof. It was built of pearls and precious stones. Also the streets thereof were paved with gold. And that by reason of the natural glory of the city and the reflection of the sunbeams upon it, Christian with desire fell sick. Hopeful also had a fit or two of the same disease. But it's not just the place. Imagine again your Abraham. It's the people, billions of people, as far as you can see and then beyond. People as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. God's people, the people of faith, your descendants, the people who God has promised you. So in the moment of your death, Abraham, you've come to see the fullness of God's promises. And they haven't failed. Not for one moment have they failed. And Abraham's arrival in heaven must have been, well, how would you describe it? Any words about to fall short of his experience and what will be our experience too. Unforgettable, extraordinary. As Abraham saw for the first time the total, the complete and the perfect fulfillment of God's promise of a place and a people to populate it. Taste, then see. That's what we're thinking about now. We taste and then we see. That's what Genesis 25, 1 to 11 is about. It's a bit of a, in some ways, it's a bit of a kind of scraps passage. Uh, it feels a bit like the end of Sunday lunch. You know, you have your last few mouthfuls of uh, roast beef, say, and a scrap of Yorkshire pudding and half a roast potato and a slice of carrot or something. Um, and that's what this passage feels like. So first of all, let's have a look at Keturah in verse 1. Uh, so it says Abraham had taken another wife whose name was Keturah. And this all sounds rather good. Uh, it suggests, doesn't it, that Sarah died and Abraham had taken Keturah uh, as his second wife. And uh, it's likely, though, that's not the case. It's likely, no, though, that you may wish to think twice before you call your daughter Keturah. Because 
verse 1, it says, had. And that word in the original suggests it was really quite some time in the past. And verse 6 here uh, says, while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Abraham had at least two concubines. We know of Hagar, the mother of Ishmael's one. And the stuff that I've read says it's most likely that Keturah was the other. In fact, if you read 1 Chronicles chapter 1 and verse 32, it calls Keturah Abraham's concubine, his mistress. That's what it's saying. And also, it's pretty unlikely that Abraham would manage to have six boys, plus any girls, when he was old, that old. I mean, you look at Genesis 17, 17, and he says he was very old there, and that was about 40 years ago. So there must have been some doing if he did that manage to have six boys plus any girls as well. And uh, so this is a bit of a clear up, a genealogy at the end of Abraham's life. I think nothing too significant here. But uh, actually, that's how they did it in those days, isn't it? You know, it's Abraham and his wife, and they had concubines at the same time. Um, like having a wife that you love and a concubines, a couple of mistresses at the same time. That's how they did it in those days. Let's be clear. That was about 4,000 years ago. It is not everything you see in the Old Testament is actually a model for how we go about things today. There are different morals today, and that is not a model of godly living. Okay? So don't go out and get yourself a concubine, right? (laughs) Just in case you were thinking you might think that's a good idea. It's not. Well, anyway, Abraham dies, um, aged 175 in verse 7. And instantly, that's a hundred years after he first set foot in the land of Canaan, the promised land, the promised land. And it says in verse eight, then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years. He was gathered to his people. Incidentally, a good old age is another promise in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, 15, God promises to Abraham he's going to live to a good old age. And uh, when, it, when it says there in verse 8, he breathed his last and uh, died to the good old age, an old man and full of years. Well, in the original, it just says full. An old man and full. I, I don't think it means he was just had Sunday lunch, um, it's, it's much more likely to be full of years, full of the time that God had given to him. And he was gathered to his people, most likely talking about life beyond the grave, the life that we now know to be heaven for all believers, for his people. And Abraham, a man of faith, being there. And so he dies. There is death in the world. It's been there from the third chapter of the Bible because of our sin. We can't avoid it. It is a fact of life. Now, many people these or many men these days have beards. But I suggest none quite like that. That's J.C. Ryle, former Bishop of Liverpool. And uh, he said this, he wrote this. Death is a mighty leveler. He spares no one. Waits for no one and stands on no ceremony. 
He will not tarry till you are ready. He will not be kept out by moats and doors and bars and bolts. The Englishman boasts that his home is his castle, but with all his boasting, he cannot exclude death. Death will come our way. You can ignore it, but death won't ignore you unless Jesus returns first. And for the Christian, death is not an enemy. Death is a gateway to heaven. And tonight we're thinking, taste and see. Tonight we think that we, on earth, we taste God's promises being fulfilled, but we see the fullness of them when we get to heaven. And how do you get to heaven if you're a Christian? You die. Yeah, you have to die as a person of faith, but you die unless Jesus returns first. It is a wonderful gateway. And I read, when I prepared this uh, two or three weeks back, I read this. There was a woman dying of a terminal illness, uh, and she asked her vicar aunt to um, uh, sort out, discuss the funeral arrangements, Christian lady. And uh, this is what he gladly did. And uh, a lovely time, sorting out hymns and readings and who might do what and so on. And uh, And then she said... I'd like to be buried. I said, that's fine. That's fine. And she, says, she said, I'd like to be fer- buried with a fork in my hand. <laughs> and he thought, what? Pardon? You know, I'd like to be buried with a fork in my hand. So why is that? Well, it's just that when we had these church dinners, someone would always say, keep your fork. And uh, that just always excited me because pudding is always the best bit. Uh, and as you know, I love puddings. So I want to be buried, she said, with a fork in my hand. Um, in my right hand, just a reminder for everyone that the best is yet to be. And so she was. The best is yet to be. So let's have uh, just a brief look now. That's the introduction, okay, on, uh, on these two promises to Abraham and see how they're being partially fulfilled at the end of his life as a sign that they will be completely fulfilled later because the best is yet to be. So, first of all, um, the people, the people, the promise of a people. Now, there are lots of people mentioned in this kind of tidy up in his first four verses, but they're not true descendants of Abraham. They're not the chosen people. That's Isaac and his family line. And Abraham does two things to ensure that Isaac is the true heir of God's promise. You have a look in verse five and you see that Isaac is the sole heir. Uh, And in verse 6, Abraham also makes gifts to his concubines, didn't have to, uh, but he treated them well. And then it sent them away, and that's probably just so they they don't kind of compete and get in the way of Isaac and his true heir and line uh, according to the promise. And then in verse 11, after Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, uh, who then lived near Beer Lahay Roy. That's where Ishmael and Isaac had fled in chapter 16. Now part of Isaac's rule as God blesses him. And when Abraham dies, he's got one son, just the one, in whom the promise is being fulfilled. The last verse of chapter 24 says, Isaac's married Rebecca. If you're a very old guy and you're thinking, well, I've got one son and God has promised I'm going to have descendants that there's numbers of stars on the seashore. I've just got the one son. And then... You know, quite soon before you die, gets married. I think that's lovely. That's pretty encouraging, really, isn't it? That's real hope. But it's hardly stars in the sky, but it's a start. It's a small start. 
It's a taste. And as we're seeing this evening, you taste and then you see. And we see when we die. True for Abraham, it's true for us. We taste now, we see then. We taste here on earth, we see in heaven. We see the fulfillment of God's promises in our death. And so, a people. There was a taste. And then Abraham saw as he entered heaven. Must have been the most extraordinary experience for him. A man of faith, a man of hope, and seeing the glory in the moment of his death and passing through judgment day. Taste, then see the people and the place. The place. Same principle, taste, then see. Abraham here has a, a glimpse of the promised land. He owned that tiny, tiny little postage stamp where he had buried Sarah uh, in chapter 23. It was Sarah's grave. It was going to become his grave as well. You look in verses 9 and 10 there. But God's promise of the land would be fulfilled later. Actually, in the book of Joshua, and spiritually, the place, the real promised land, our promised land, is not a physical place. It's a spiritual place. It's heaven. The new heaven and the new earth. Well, it will be physical as well. But it's just the same for us. It's our place too. Heaven is our place. That's our hope. For many people, uh, they would say that the best film of all time was the 1994 film, The Shawshank Redemption. And uh, there was a kind of a strapline for the film, fear can hold you prisoner, hope can set you free. And we have the best and the biggest hope in the world. The fulfillment of those promises first made to Abraham of God's people in God's place. And it's happening. It is happening bit by bit by bit by bit. Here in Genesis chapter 25, it's exciting. Here today, as people turn to Christ and find new life in him, that is exciting. That is a fulfillment of this promise. And as Christian people go to glory, it's a fulfillment of the ages, fulfilling this promise. The whole thing is just rolling on and heaven is being populated by God's people. Death for a Christian, it can be a really sad day. It's a great parting and we still grieve many loved ones, maybe from years and years ago. But we must also remember, it's a gate to glory for them. It is the fulfillment of God's promises. It is taste, then see. Now we need to apply this. And we need to apply it right. And I believe that many Christians don't. And broadly speaking, there are three approaches. Approach one is this, that a Christian life and the joy and the experience is all then in the future. And there's none now, to put it in its extreme case. So it's in that case, it's all see, but no taste. Which leads to a miserable Christian life now of duty and obligation and no enjoyment and no smiles and no fun. And if you're like that, you need to remember that we do taste now. That Abraham did get a taste of the promised land and did get a little taste of his descendants as well. And that taste is wonderful. There is a taste now. 
in experiencing and being with God's people in your small group, in our church services, in singing God's praises together and being able to pray with other Christians and so on. There is a taste now. Approach number two is the opposite extreme, which is to say that it's all now. And yeah, sure, it's going to be later as well, but it's hardly any more than we get now. So there's a real focus on the here and now. Posh people call it over-realized eschatology, but don't worry too much about that. So, um, uh, uh, so, so these kind of folks will, um, will talk about, oh, it was church tonight, it was heaven on earth. And, uh, uh, and they expect all the glories of heaven to be available and busy and involved now, to be experienced right here, right now. So in other words, it's taste. Oh, there is a seeing as well, but it's just the same as here, really. So it's taste. Now, if you're approached to that one, you've got not much to look forward to, really, have you? Because it's all now. That's to put it in this extreme. And, uh, and, and the likelihood is you're thinking, well, heaven's not that really that important and dying is a problem because we ought, ought to have all the glories that heaven gives us now. So we all ought to be healed and we'll be praying that people might be raised from the dead if they are, if they do die. Um, uh, and the trouble is when you have that kind of theology, you actually do begin to struggle with the, the mess of life and the sinful behavior of people because it's all supposed to be heaven now. And heaven's not like that, is it? But actually life is. So that gets to be quite difficult, doesn't it, in, in some ways, or in many ways. So if you tend to uh, approach two, I think you need to remember that the best, which is far, far, far better by now. Remember Paul saying, talking about, you know, oh, well, do I stick around or what do I most want, really want to do? Do I want to live or die? And he says, to die is better by far. So it's not all now. It's taste, then see. It's not taste and see all right now. And then uh, there's approach number three, which is what I've been talking about tonight, which is taste and then see. Taste the glories. Rejoice in God's love. Enjoy praising God. Give yourself to it. And all the time remembering that this is a taster. The best is yet to be. The real deal is when we get to heaven. Now, there used to be a little ditty, I suppose it's still around now. Pie in the sky when you die is better than pain in the pit when you flip. Well, that's true. We are talking about the wonders of heaven. You could say pie in the sky when you die. But about a billion times better. A billion and more times better. But there's more, because we've also got cake on the plate while we wait. As a friend of mine once said to me, you see, we taste, we taste now. So we do have the cake on the plate as we're waiting now. Now, that's to trivialize it. But what I'm saying is we, we should be loving being with God's people. Meeting with God's people, praising God with God's people, enjoying our small group, loving, uh, committing ourselves to, to come and serve and to pray and welcome others and so on. Enjoy the taster, as that's what we have now. And the Christian life is great fun. It's fulfilling. It's wonderful. There's nowhere I'd rather be on a Sunday than here, right here, right now on a Sunday night. And we hope in the seeing.
Because one day, when we die, or when Jesus returns, we will be in heaven, eternity. Now, the most loved passage in the Bible, probably, certainly the most loved passage on wedding days, is 1 Corinthians 13. And in verse 12, it says this. For now, now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Oh, and remember in those days, mirrors weren't very good when Paul wrote that. We see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face, as we sang earlier on. Now, Paul said, I know in part... Now I know in part, I do know, but I only know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Taste, then see. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we have... A wonderful hope and a wonderful taster now. And we pray, Lord, you'd help us to keep that tension, that balance right between the two. Thank you, Lord, that we do taste now. There are glories and joys and wonder of the Christian life that we we enjoy now. But it's nothing like what it's going to be. We pray, Lord, we'd always have that future focus and that delight as we look to the future. Please, Lord, would you build us and strengthen us. May our future, Lord, help us every day. And may we enjoy all that you've given us in our taster that we have every day as well. For Jesus' sake. Amen.